There's also times whenever we spend our money, our time, or our energy, even in great ways, and yet we go, it is worth it. It's worth it, right? Have you ever poured out money, time, or energy into something that you found it brought you great joy to do so? You didn't see it as an ouch, but as an offering almost. All of us, I think, have had times for that. For your kids, you pour this out, whether you realize it or not. I'm sure you do. Maybe some sport or hobby you pour yourself into and you find joy in doing it. Maybe it's a relationship. I used to always joke as a college pastor, you could tell whenever two college students started dating because literally like, like love bubbles were above them everywhere they went, right? Like, and the guy's pouring out all of his time, money, and the little bit of money that he has and energy into that relationship, right? And I would ask you why. You see, whenever we treasure something, and I mean truly treasure it, it transcends our money, our time, and our energy, right? And oddly enough, those things become the currency with which we show how much we love something, right? Time, money, and energy become the currency of our love and devotion. We gladly spend ourselves and our resources for it. The title of the sermon this morning is Treasuring Jesus. Treasuring Jesus. And the question I want to propose to you today and ask you to answer is this. Do you treasure Jesus above everything else in your life? Do you treasure Jesus above everything else in your life? Is he your highest treasure? Let's pray, and then we're going to jump into God's word together. Heavenly Father, our prayer is that through your word this morning, Lord, help us see our own hearts. Help us see, do we treasure you? Give us an honest evaluation of ourselves this morning. Lord, I also ask you, please help us clearly see your worth and your value that transcends everything in this life. God, I pray that regardless of where we currently are this morning, help us all leave with a decisive mind to treasure you above everything. Father, as always, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to accept and respond to the word you have for us this morning. We ask all this in your precious and holy son's name. Amen. Amen. So before we jump into John chapter 12, you need to understand the backstory. And so I'll remind you um, or tell you if you haven't been able to be here. So in John chapter 11, we see this interesting event where Lazarus, the brother of two women named Mary and Martha, is deathly ill. They send to Jesus and say, come to us. The one whom you love is sick. And so Jesus, because he loves them, it says he waited two more days. And he got there four days after Lazarus had passed away. Well, Jesus goes to the grave, says, Lazarus, come out. Remember, he rises Lazarus from the dead. He raises him from the dead. And then after that, we see some of the Jews stuck around Jesus. But other Jews left, and they went in and told the religious leaders. Remember, they tattled on Jesus. And if you remember the religious leaders, we talked about it last week. They, they made this plan. They said, if we let Jesus keep going and doing what he's doing, we're going to lose our place. We're going to lose our nation. So they decide swiftly, there's only one solution. We need to kill Jesus. And the way chapter 11 ends is we see that Jesus leaves and goes to Ephraim. He goes there. He doesn't walk openly in public in Judea anymore because he knows they want to kill him. But then also we see something interesting. We see that this is during the Passover. Passover has come, the time where Jews will flock to Judea, to Jerusalem. And what's interesting is the talk of the town at the end of chapter 11 is, will Jesus show his face? Will Jesus show up? Is Jesus going to come? People are wondering and anticipating, is Jesus going to come to the Passover? 
And this is where we begin, John chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, with the setting of another story. We're with me. It says, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. So what we see here is we're in the last week before Jesus gives up his life. Six days before Passover, we see Jesus goes from Ephraim to Bethany, which is two miles from Jerusalem. So he's flirting with the area where the people are who want to kill him. We see he goes there and they hold a dinner for him. Y'all want you, I know that many of you probably have heard this story before or know some parts of this story. I want you to imagine this scene. The last time Jesus came to Bethany, Mary and Martha's eyes had been bawling out for four days because their brother had died. They've been asking the question amongst each other, does Jesus really love us? Does Jesus really care? Does Jesus really care about us? Did he really love Lazarus? We see they come, the first thing they say to him is, if you'd been here. Well, now we see Jesus is coming back to this area, and it's a very different entry point, if you would. We see they host a dinner for him. No doubt they want to honor Jesus coming back to Bethany where he rose Lazarus from the dead. And look and see, how, how are they worshiping him? We see Martha is serving Jesus. If you know anything about Martha, that was her love language, if you will. She loved to serve. This time we don't see her complaining about what Mary's doing or anybody else. We see her just serving Jesus, delighting in serving Jesus. Lazarus was sitting there at the table. I want you to imagine being a part of that table discussion. I don't know how long ago it was, but hey, Lazarus, remember last time he was here, you were a goner, buddy. Like, how did that go, right? Imagine Lazarus talking. Imagine the joy that was a part of that dinner. And the question is, is where's Mary? What's Mary doing? As I told you last week, or I guess it was two weeks ago now, anytime we see Mary, she is always at the feet of Jesus. And today she is as well, but this time it's different. Mary's at the feet of Jesus for a specific purpose. And I want you to see. Look at Mary's action, verse 3. It says, Mary, therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. All right, y'all, I want you to imagine this scene. Picture it in your mind. So in this day, they would have been eating at a table that was very much so shortly off of, off of the ground. It wouldn't be that far off the ground. There would have been a pillow around the table and the way they would have eaten is they would have been resting one elbow on this pillow, laying down, one elbow on the pillow with the other hand, they would be eating. And so their feet were away from the table, their heads were at the table. And at some point during this evening, while they're sitting there talking and eating, we see Mary comes out. And with an extraordinary, I mean extraordinary, extravagant gesture, she bends down and anoints the feet of Jesus, washes his feet with her hair. Can you imagine the scene? You know, what she does is extravagant beyond belief. Let me explain it to you. There's at least three aspects that are extravagant here. One, the extravagant value with which the perfume she used to anoint Jesus. It says that it was pure nard. Now, if you're like me, that means absolutely nothing. So what in the world is nard? Well, D.A. Carson helps us here. Nard is an oil extracted from the root and spike of the nard plant. This plant is grown only in India. 
And once again, that might not mean anything, but this plant is grown in India. The reason that he says that this is made from pure nard means it was genuine. This came from India, over 2,500 miles away. Y'all, they didn't have planes back then. Do you know how expensive this ointment would have been? Do you know how expensive this would have been to even get it there? And she takes this expensive ointment. Later on, we find out it's so expensive that it would take 300 days wages to pay for this. So if you include days off throughout that, y'all, that's a year's salary. Can you imagine taking a year of your salary and putting it to perfume? Some of the women maybe can, but guys, we can't, right? Can you imagine that? That's an incredibly extravagant gift. But then look at what else we see here. It's not just an extravagant gift, it's an extravagant amount. It says that she took a pound of this ointment, a pound. You know, very early on, whenever I used to take my brother's cologne and dabble it all over my head, I found out a very important thing is it doesn't take that much, right? It doesn't take that much. Remember in college, there was this time whenever I had a friend who used to always talk about getting some smell good. That was the thing he'd always say. And I realized, you know, guys around me wearing cologne, I need to step my game up. You know, I'm this college guy. And so I go to buy cologne one day. And I find this $17 cheap cologne. I don't remember if it was TJ Maxx or Marshalls. It was some cheap cologne. But I remember I didn't want to tell anybody what it it was at first because it was a cologne by Paris Hilton, which, you know, you buy a cologne by Paris Hilton, which is weird in general. But then I ended up liking telling people because the reason, one of the reasons I got the cologne was that it was titled Just Me. It was Just Me by Paris Hilton. And so I loved wearing it because if people ever asked me, what are you wearing? I could always just say, it's just me, right? Like, I could just do that. That puts you into vain college merit, right? It's just me. Well, I learned very quickly, y'all, once again, it doesn't take very much cologne to be in an area for people to smell, right? A couple of sprays at most. This is a pound. A pound. I don't know if you can even buy cologne or perfume by the pound today. And she takes all of it and anoints the feet of Jesus with it. This is extravagant, an extravagant amount. How big is it? John's talking about it. He says the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. This left an indelible mark on anybody who was there. They smelt this perfume, and they smelt it strongly. We see an extravagant amount. We third, we also see, and probably the most extravagant part of all this, is an extravagant gesture. See how she does this. She anointed his feet, wipes it with her hair. In doing so, she violated numerous cultural norms for that day. To touch someone's feet was essentially forbidden. Like, it was beneath you to touch someone's feet. How far beneath you? Well, if you had servants, if someone was a Jewish servant of yours, they still wouldn't wash your feet. Why? Because that was beneath them to touch your feet. That was, that was reserved for the Gentile slaves. They wouldn't even allow other Jews to touch their feet. What is she doing? She goes down, and she's touching his feet. Not only is she touching his feet, it says that she takes her hair down. Yo, women would never, never take their hair down in public because this was an incredibly intimate act. By doing this, it's an intimate thing that you would do just alone with your husband. She is showing an intimacy with Jesus, but also taking down her dignity, if you will. But also for a woman in that age, her hair was her crown of glory. And what is she doing with her hair? She's wiping the dirt off of Jesus' feet, anointing his feet. Now, you cannot imagine as she's doing this, the gasps 
that would have been in the room. It was an incredible gesture from Mary to Jesus. But another question I want to ask you, and it's an honest question that I don't know if we ever really ask, and that question is, why would she do this? Why would she do this? She didn't have to do this. Why would she take all of this, pour it out, anoint it? Why would she take her head out? Why? Why would she do all of this? And once again, I want to remind you, the last time before Jesus came to town, they spent four days questioning Jesus. If you remember, whenever Jesus first comes back after Lazarus has died, both Martha and Mary say the exact same thing to Jesus. Jesus, if you had just been here, if you'd just been here, why did they send a message to Jesus? Because they thought for sure he loves them, he's going to come. We see later on people even talking about, man, Jesus really must have loved Lazarus. See, he's crying over him. The last time Jesus, before he came, the question that everybody was asking is, does Jesus really love Lazarus? Does he really love Mary and Martha? And what did Mary learn through that? The answer was easily yes. He absolutely loves us. And so Mary, as she's doing this, you could say she's pouring out her love back to Jesus. You could say she sees the love that Jesus has for her, and she's pouring this out as a worthy sacrifice for him. But something else I'd never heard before and hadn't really thought about is this was also a very symbolic gesture. Notice it says that she is anointing him with oil. She's not just washing his feet. She's not just wiping him. She's anointing him. Do you know what anointing was, was, was for in those days? You have to think back to Jewish history. Anytime somebody was anointed, they were anointed to be something. They were going from who they were being anointed for something. Emily and I with the kids, just last night we talked about David and Goliath in our Jesus Storybook Bible. That was our time last night. The night before we talked about how Samuel went to Jesse's house and he anointed David. By anointing David, he said, you are going to be king. That's what the act was reserved for. Anointing was for someone who was going to be in a different role, a king. But I want you to think, whenever you anointed a future king, you would always anoint them on their head. And yet, where do we find Mary? At his feet. Where do servants, the lowest of the lowest servants, where do they hang out? At the feet of their master. Stephen Smith says it. It is clear to everyone who is in the room exactly not only what Mary is doing, but what Mary is saying. And she's saying this, Jesus, I am your servant and you are my king. This is the point of why she's doing it. Everybody around them would have understood. They would have seen this, but not everybody agreed with what she was doing. Now, I want you to look with me at verses 4 through 6, and notice how some responses occurred because of this. Verse 4, it says, But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money back, he used to help himself to what was put into it. A very interesting thing that you may not know is this is the first time we see Judas speak in all of the Gospels. The first time. Now, we see him say other things in the other Gospels, but it's always towards the end, even more towards the end of Jesus' life, speaking to the officials, or afterwards going back to the officials saying, I don't want the money anymore. But this is the first time, the earliest time anything's recorded of what Judas actually says. And I want you to hear what he says and how it sounds. 
Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Friends, is this not a valid question? Your whole year's salary poured out at the feet of Jesus like that in seconds or sold and given to the poor. This is a very pious-seeming request, right? It seems like a very righteous request of Judas. But we see as John tells it, he's able to look back. He didn't know in the moment Judas's heart. But as he looks back, he says he said this because he was a thief, not because he actually cared about the poor. Think about this. There is an issue here. Judas sounds pious on the outside, but his heart could not have been further from the truth. As Mary is giving herself to Jesus, he looks at it and says, what a waste. What a waste. Judas condemns Mary, but not because of his generosity, but because of his greed. And while he maybe sounded pious, what he really cared about was money, not Jesus. You know how I can prove it? Is you'll find in a few short hours, he's going to choose money over Jesus. Jesus tells us very clearly, Matthew 6, you've got to pick one. You can't serve both God and money, right? Sooner or later, you'll find that out. And what we see already in just these few verses, there's a clear distinction that John is even making for us. Judas views Jesus as not worthy of certain aspects of his life. But Mary sees Jesus as worthy of everything in his life. Judas uses possessions to bless himself. Y'all, that's what's called a win-win situation. Judas, in his mind, no doubt, is thinking, okay, give to the poor. I'm sure maybe he actually did want to do that. Yes, let's give to the poor. But he's also saying, I get to get some of that money myself. It's a win-win. I look good giving to the poor, and I get to benefit from it. His motive was about himself. Mary used her possessions not to bless herself, but to bless Jesus. She absolutely empties herself at his feet. What you don't need to miss is this. John is telling the story from hindsight. During the event, he doesn't know, right? They had no clue. And what we need to understand is the outside that we get from someone is not always what's going on actually on the inside of them, even those who seem pious or seem righteous. And this story gets to the heart of that. Let me explain even more. Let's look how Jesus responds. Verse 7 and 8. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. I like the way the New Living Translation says this. It's helpful for us. Leave her alone. She did this in preparation for my burial. Now hear me. I've read some people this week who said they, Mary believed Jesus whenever Jesus said his life was coming to an end. I don't know if that's true. I don't think we can know that's true. All I know is this, whether she knew it or not, she was preparing him for burial. You see, the spice that she used, the ointment that she used actually was a burial spice. The whole reason that someone would have it would be to anoint someone who has already died, anoint them for burial. That's why many people would say that this was given to her in order for that purpose, to bury a loved one. It was given to her. Oftentimes, if a woman were to marry a man, they would have some expensive ointment like this that would now be a part of their marriage. They would give to someone whom they love whenever they die. It was an extravagant gesture. But what you see is she does it before Jesus dies. Whether she knew it or not, she was preparing him for his burial, and Jesus himself says it. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. To be exact, you've got six days, and then you won't have me with you anymore. Leave her alone. What she's doing is better. Now, I want to finish verses 9 through 11, but I want to use them later 
to prove a point. And I want to stop here in the middle to really use the bulk or most of the rest of our time to simply ask the question, how can we use a simple story like this? How are we to understand a simple story like this? What are we to ask ourselves? What questions does this text ask? And I think the question that this text asks is simply this. Do you treasure Jesus above everything? Do you treasure Jesus above everything? Is he the absolute highest treasure of your life? Now I would tell you even as I ask it, this is a tough question to ask. Because why? You have to say, how do you measure that, right? How can I know if Jesus is my treasure above anything? Well, I want to remind you what I said in the introduction that I think all of you would agree with me on. I said this, when we treasure something, truly treasure it, it will transcend our money, our time, and our energy. As a matter of fact, money, time, and energy will become the currency of our love and devotion to them. We'll find that we will gladly spend ourselves and our resources for it. I would propose to you there is one easy way that we could define love. How can you express love to someone? I would tell you one word, and I think I can prove it to you, and that one word is simply sacrifice. How do you know whenever you love somebody or something, well, how much are you willing to sacrifice? When we treasure something or someone, it's evident by our sacrifice. Indeed, we show our love to others even by our sacrifice. In other words, if I were to ask you, what or whom do you love, I think you could answer the question by simply saying, well, what or whom do I sacrifice for? Think about it in general. Whenever two people get married, that is a grand sacrifice. Why? Because what are they saying? They're saying you and you alone for life. Think about your children. When you have a child, you're about to sacrifice time. Dear Lord, we know that's the truth. Energy, yes. Resources, yes. What about in your hobbies? For many of us, our hobbies, we will sacrifice a lot of time, of energy, or resources to do it. This is tongue-in-cheek, but what about shopping? This idea, we need this. Oftentimes, it's how much am I willing to sacrifice to get this, right? We'll find the important things in our life. Seriously, the question of answering what or whom do I love is look at your life. What or whom do you sacrifice for? You'll find your answer. And we know this, that sacrificial acts often show the depth of our love like nothing else can. I read a story this week about a pastor. His name is Stu Weber. I have no idea who he is. I just found the article online. He tells a story about his youngest son that particularly moved him. So he, he said, I have three sons. And he said, I had my two oldest sons were incredibly smart, incredibly athletic, He said both of them were all Americans in the sports that they played. Both of them excelled with school. And he said, my third, he actually kept calling him my caboose, I was always concerned about. Because I know he felt this weight to live up to what his brothers were, and we didn't want that for him. We wanted him to know, you don't have to live up to that. He said the problem was, is also he couldn't. He wasn't athletic. He wasn't as sharp as they were. And he said, I tried to take time to make sure he understood I'm not concerned about that. I wanted to help him find out how are you gifted? What has God gifted you in? And so he said, one of the things I did a lot with him is we would go camping. We would go hiking. hiking. We would go hunting. We would do all these things together. He says, if you've ever been camping, you know there are certain things you have to make sure you bring with you. Fishing, camping, hiding. You need to make sure you have a really good tent. You need to make sure you have 
fire. You need to make sure you have all these things. He says specifically, one thing you must always make sure you have is a really good pocket knife, a sharp pocket knife. He said what I found, and I quote from him, he said what we find is the man with the best blade often gets the job done. So whenever you're setting up camp, you're always looking for the knife. He said, oddly enough, this is where my son Ryan found his identity. We got him a pocket knife, and it became his identity. His older brothers always had to ask him to use the knife as we were setting up camp or going or fishing or whatever. He, this became his status in our little tribe. He was the man with the blade. He said, one day my birthday came around, and my family was planning a big party for me. Earlier in the afternoon, my youngest son walked into my office, though, while I was studying. And he came in quietly, almost unnoticed, but I could feel that he was in the study with me. And so I turn around, and I recognize that he'd chosen this moment to come and tell me something. And he pulls out from behind his back a gift. He says, Dad, I want to give this to you before the party. His dad opens up the gift, and it's the son's pocket knife. Friends, I would ask you, what thing could the son give the father that would have meant more than that? Pocket knife isn't expensive. You could buy them. They're a dime a dozen, right? But for him, he says, Dad, I love you enough to give you the one thing. I consider a part of my identity. Friends, we know this. You want to know love? It's measured by sacrifice. We show that's the truth in our own lives. We see this even here. Consider the story of Mary. How does she show that Jesus is her treasure? By one word. Sacrifice. Her public dignity, who cares? Valuable property, I'll pour it out to you. Public perception, I'll pour it out to Jesus. Everything that she does is extravagantly done to say, Jesus, I treasure you. I am your servant, and you are my king. And the key is this. Mary would not have considered this a sacrifice at all. Rather, it would have been a delight to her. She wasn't worried about how everybody else was looking at her because her eyes were fixed on Jesus, and she adored him. She poured out her love to him. This wasn't a sacrifice to her. It was merely a response to the love that Jesus had shown her. Y'all, this helps us tremendously. And I want to tell you, it helps us tremendously even define love. How do you know love? Well, you know love whenever sacrificing for someone isn't a duty Rather, it is your delight. In other words, you could define love like this. I have it for you on the screen. Love equals delightful sacrifice. Look at your life, and it will prove true. Those whom you sacrifice for, you find if it's a duty, there's an issue there. If it's a delight, that's what love is. Delightfully sacrificing. So bringing us back to the question at hand, do you treasure Jesus above everything With all of that, I think I should give you, I should give myself three clarifying questions. And the first question is this. Do you willingly sacrifice for Jesus? Do you willingly sacrifice for Jesus? You see, when we love Jesus, we'll we'll see a sacrificial change in how we spend our time and how we spend our energy and how we spend and steward our resources, right? If love equals delightful sacrifice, then that means this is not something in your life that must be coerced. 
That's why in all of the New Testament, you'll never find a command to give. You'll never find Paul strong-handing the Corinthians to give money. No, you see the Macedonians giving out of their delight. It's their delight to sacrifice, to give to Jesus. It's a delight to give your time to him. It's a delight to give of your resources to him or your energy to him. What you see with Mary is Mary, you didn't have to coerce this response from her. It was natural, and she didn't see it as a sacrifice at all. It was a delightful sacrifice, a way to show her love for Jesus. I would ask you, do you have the desire to sacrificially give yourself to Jesus and his mission for your life? This is an extravagant example, and I recognize that. But whenever I was in Ruston, I got the great opportunity to meet one of the greatest men I've ever known. He's still a mentor to me. We still talk twice a week on the phone. Many of you have heard me say the name Mike Benefield before. But Mike and I, I learned a lot about Mike before he and I ever met. You see, whenever I got to Ruston, Mike had just gotten back from the mission field, and he was 68 years old, getting off of the mission field. Well, I learned, somebody said, well, he didn't used to be in ministry, so I ended up finding out his story. Come to find out, Mike was sharp as could be, got an engineering degree, went very high up in an engineering firm very quickly to where he was making a lot, a lot, a lot of money. Later on, I found out because I asked somebody, I said, what are we talking about a lot? They said, easily 300, 350 grand is somewhere in that range. And he's, he's the next man up for whenever the VP of this organization is out. He's in line to make a lot of money. And I said, well, what happened? He said, well, in his early 30s, the more he prayed, the more he grew in his relationship with Christ, he said he felt the Lord clearly telling him, walk away and come and serve me. I want you to be a minister. I want you to be a pastor. That's not the calling of everybody's life. Let me be clear. But he said for him, that became clear to him. And so early 30s, he quit his job. He went to seminary. He graduated. He became an associate pastor for numerous years. And at the age of 58, he had a friend call him from Turkey saying, man, we need help. And your skill set is exactly what we need. He and his wife prayed about it. And at 58 years old, they went to the IMB and got commissioned as missionaries and went overseas for 10 years. So in other words, I'd have been crazy not to have him help with the college ministry, right? But the more and more I got to know him, the more humbly, he would never talk about that. And one day I called him specifically for this purpose for another sermon I was doing. And I said, Mike, I want to ask you a question I've never talked to you about. And he said, sure, go ahead. I said, I want to ask you, how did you give up everything you'd worked for to go into ministry? How did you do it? Why did you do it? How did you sacrifice all that? I'll never get his response. He said, Merrick, I didn't give up anything. I followed Jesus. You see, here's the thing, friends. Whenever you sacrifice for someone, you don't see it as a sacrifice, right? It's a response. I love my kids and sacrifice my kids because I love them. I delight in doing that. I delight in doing that for my bride. We should do that for Jesus. Y'all, to the world, this sounds crazy, but to Mike, to Christ followers, it should be obvious. Of course I would sacrifice for Jesus. So to be more clear, I would ask you, you don't have to go that extravagantly. That's one example that has affected me profoundly. But I would ask you, how has following Jesus made you sacrifice? How has following Jesus led you to sacrificially give yourself to him? 
More specifically regarding your time, does the way you spend your time reveal that you treasure Jesus or does it reveal you treasure something else much more? What about your resources? Does the way you steward what God has given you show you treasure him or that you treasure other things? The Bible doesn't say you can't have nice things. It just says you don't find your value and your worth in them. What about your energy? Does the way you spend your energy reveal that you treasure Jesus? What about your decision-making? Does it show that you treasure Jesus? We can go down a long list. What does your life say you treasure? See, for the Christian, this shouldn't be something coerced or strong-armed to make you do it. It should be a byproduct of knowing Jesus. Let me explain it to you this way. Romans 12.1. Paul's talking to a group of people who are believers, and he says this to them. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Friends, if you were to define what does it look like to worship Jesus, Paul would say it looks like being a living sacrifice. That's what it looks like. It looks like sacrificially giving yourself to Jesus, saying, my life is yours. Do with it what you will. It's having indifference about everything in your life. Lord, what do you want me to do? Take it or leave it. I want your will for my life. Do you willingly sacrifice for him? The second clarifying question I would ask you is, do you treasure him privately? Do you treasure him privately? This might be an odd question, but hear me. What we do privately says a lot about ourselves. Let me explain it this way. Another way I would try to say this is, do you try to look like you treasure Jesus, or do you treasure him? You see, with Judas, we see he looked pious. He looked righteous. He made a great suggestion. We could have given all of this to the poor. That would have sounded good, right? But that wasn't his heart. With Mary, we see she pours herself out at the feet of Jesus. Her actions were about him. It wasn't about looking a certain way. It was about Jesus. You know, the sad truth is that many within the church are more concerned about looking religious or Christ-like than they actually are concerned about being Christ-like. More of us are concerned about whether people think we read the Bible or not than us actually reading the Bible or not. Many of us are more concerned about the perception of people and us than we actually are our relationship with Jesus. And I want to ask you this. Many of us, or I would say it to you like this, many of us need to recognize that doing good things for Jesus does not replace worship of him. They could have sold all this and given it to the poor. That is a good thing. But it wouldn't have been worship had he done it. It wouldn't have been worship for Jesus, I mean for Judas. Doing good things is not the same as worshiping him. And so I would ask you, diagnose yourself this morning. Ask yourself the question, is this me? And I would tell you, if your public display of devotion to Jesus is your only display of devotion to Jesus, you need to ask yourself some questions this morning. What do I mean? I mean, if you are quick to attend church, to serve in church, to help in some public way, but rarely spend time alone with Jesus, you need to check your heart this morning and see, do you treasure him? Or do you treasure being seen as one who treasures him? If your public displays of devotion are joyful, but your private displays of, of spending time with Jesus are boring, laborious, or drudgery, you need to ask some questions. If you enjoy serving in public, but you find that whenever you try to pray or read the word or spend time alone with Jesus, it's just a job, 
I'm not saying you want to have seasons where that's the case. I'm saying if that is the case, you need to ask, do you treasure Jesus? If you only participate in religious activities whenever it is convenient or beneficial for you, you need to ask the question, do I really treasure Jesus? Or is this just a ritual that I try and keep up? Mary's sacrificial gesture towards Jesus was merely a response to what he had done for her. Treasuring Jesus is the response of those who see how much he truly loves them. Friends, this will happen both privately and publicly. Do you willingly sacrifice for him? Do you treasure him privately? The third question I would ask you is, does your love for Jesus naturally affect those around you? And hear how specific that question is. Does your love for Jesus naturally, that means not coerced, not forced, does it naturally affect those who are around you? Does your worship of him naturally affect those around you? And once again, look at the detail that John gives us. He says, the smell of this ointment filled the whole house. I want you to imagine John as he's writing this, closing his eyes, reminiscing over what happened, saying, then Mary came bringing a pound of this ointment. She knelt down at Jesus' feet. She does this, and then one of the things that he remembers that stuck out to him is he goes, I remember everyone could smell it. It filled the whole house. This may be a small detail, but what he's saying is this is impactful. In other words, Mary's gesture affected everyone who was there, even though that wasn't her intent. Does the way you love Jesus naturally overflow and to those who are around you. Friends, I'll tell you, whenever you've been changed by Jesus, it will be a natural byproduct of loving him. It will flow out in your life. Doesn't this make sense? Whenever Jesus has worked in your life, it has no choice but to spill out, both intentionally and unintentionally. Now hear me, some say, Merrick, you don't understand. I'm not that gifted. My presence isn't that strong. I'm not this. I'm not that. We often look at ourselves, right? Well, I want you to see this passage has something to say to you as well. Look at verses 9 through 11. It says this, when the large crowd of the Jews, remember, they are in Jerusalem saying, I wonder if Jesus is going to show up. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there at Bethany, they came, not only on account of him, but who did they come to see? But also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. You know, in one sense, you can look at this passage, you can say, who is Mary? Mary's a woman who wouldn't even been allowed to testify in court, yet her love for Jesus spills out to other people. But look also at Lazarus. How many of you can name anything that Lazarus did? How many of you can name anything that Lazarus said? You can't. You want to know why? Because you don't know. It doesn't seem like he said anything significant enough for any gospel to write. It doesn't seem like he did anything significant enough for any of the gospel writers to write. And yet, notice that he is a witness to the powerful work of Jesus. People are coming out to go see Jesus, but they also want to see Lazarus. In other words, Lazarus was just evidence of the power of Jesus. Friends, hear me. If you're a follower of Jesus, 
It doesn't matter your gifting or not gifting. If you know him, then you merely should be an evidence of the power of Jesus and what happens when he comes into someone's life. In other words, I'd say it like this. People came to see Jesus. He was an excellent witness for Jesus, not because of what Lazarus did for Jesus, but because of what Jesus had done for Lazarus. That's where the power of our witness lies and what he has done for us. Aren't we supposed to be a witness and evidence of the work of Christ? Aren't we supposed to be the light of the world, the salt of the earth? Aren't we supposed to be the ones who are called to be set apart, living differently? And with that, merely proclaiming, I'm just evidence of the work that Jesus has done in my life. Friends, hear me. If this is true of you, you should see that it doesn't matter what you can do. Rather, it only matters what he has done and will continue to do in you. And when you treasure Jesus, it will pour out into your life. It'll pour out into others who are around you, like the action of Mary filled the room. But I want you to think about something else with Mary. Mary wiped the ointment with her hair. What do you think people smelled wherever Mary went? For the next week, wherever she went, they smelled what? What she poured out at Jesus' feet. Friends, you know what we're called to do? 2 Corinthians. 2, verses 14 and 15, it puts it this way. But thanks be to God. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And through us, what does he do? He spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Verse 15. For we are the aroma of Christ. To God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. I talked to you about perfume earlier. I talked to you about cologne earlier. Whenever someone with cologne enters the room... They don't have to say, hey, I put on cologne today. What happens? It affects those who are around them. Friends, hear me. Whenever you love Jesus, you shouldn't have an on and off switch of your love for him based on Sundays or Wednesdays or public life or private life. Rather, your love for Jesus should be a flowing stream inside of you, as Jesus tells the woman at the well, and it will flow out of you into other people who are around you. Question is this Do you treasure Jesus above everything? Do you willingly sacrifice for him? Do you treasure him privately? Do you naturally affect those who are around you? In closing, I will tell you this the only way you will treasure him is whenever you, like Mary, sees how much he treasures you. The only way you will treasure him is whenever you see how much he treasures you through the gospel, through the good news of Jesus, delighting in it over and over and over and over again. Do you think that we get the idea that love is best shown through delightful sacrifice because of what we do with each other? Friends, who is love? God. How did God choose to put his love on display? You could say it was delightful sacrifice. 1 John 4.10, in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Jesus didn't go to the cross because he was coerced. In Philippians 2, it says that he emptied himself, not just to come to earth. He came to earth to be a servant, not just to be a servant, but to die, not just to die, but to die on a cross. Why? Because he says, I value you more than you could ever imagine. I care about you. I love you. It doesn't matter what you've been through. It doesn't matter what you've done. I delighted to go to the cross for you. Not while you were pretty, but while you were sinful. 
I put my love on display. Your destiny was hopeless without me, but I came to change that. You may be dead on the inside. I have come to change that. And Philippians 5.2 tells us that Jesus was the fragrance before we ever can be. Ephesians 5.2 says it this way. Walk in love as Christ loved us and did what? And gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Friends, you only will treasure Jesus whenever you realize just how much he treasures you. The last thing I would tell you with Jesus is the beauty is, is he doesn't just say, I treasure you on the cross. He says, I'm with you always. The ups and downs, I'm there. The hardships, I'm there. Whatever you go through, I am there. I will give myself to you. And when you die physically, you will come and be with me, and I will give you myself for all of eternity. And you cannot imagine the pleasure that awaits that. We get our definition of love from the one who is love, Jesus himself. So I'll say it again. To treasure Jesus really is just to respond to his initiated love for you. Do you love Jesus? Do you treasure him above everything? Can you say, I love Jesus more than I love anything? I treasure him more than I treasure anything. I value him more than I value anything. Oddly enough, we see a story where Jesus actually tells his disciples, if you don't love me more than your family, more than your kids, then you're not worthy of me. I don't think Jesus was joking. I think what Jesus was saying is, if you want to follow me, you need to see the treasure that I am. Friends, is this your heart? Do you treasure Jesus above everything? I ask if you would to bow your heads with me. As the band comes and begins to play, I just want you to ask those three questions of yourself. Bow your heads, close your eyes, think for yourself, and answer the question, do you treasure Jesus above everything? Do you? I want you to walk through the questions I ask you. Do you, and and personalize it, say, do I willingly sacrifice for him? What does my life say? Ask yourself, do I treasure him both privately and publicly? Ask yourself, do I naturally affect those who are around me? Friends, what I'm calling you to this morning is one of two conclusions. The first is this. Some of you need to realize this morning that you do not treasure Jesus. It's because you've never treasured the gospel. It's because you've never repented and said, God, not my way, but your way. You've never surrendered and said, God, you are my king and my Lord. And some of you, the response you need this morning is to repent and believe in the gospel. Respond to his initiated love by repenting, saying, Jesus, I don't want to do it my way anymore. I want to live for you. You need to repent and believe in him. You can do that right now where you're at. The second option for you this morning is some of us need to repent and reprioritize. Some of us need to realize maybe with our time, energy, resource, whatever it might be, we've gotten off base. And you know it because the Holy Spirit is convicting you right now of it. What you need to do is repent and reprioritize. 
and say, Jesus, I want to treasure you above everything. Help me in doing so. Maybe it's finding a small group, finding a Sunday school class, getting other believers around you to help you in this. The question for you this morning is how do you need to respond? The response song this morning is simply, I surrender all. I want to ask you, is that true of you? I'll be down here. Brayden will be down here. My wife will be here if you want to talk to her. Maybe you want to come pray at the altar. Maybe you just want to sit where you're at. Maybe you do want to stand and sing with us. I invite you to respond however you feel led to do so this morning.